I'd like you to turn in your Bible with me this morning to Matthew chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 1 today. If you're new with us uh, through this series, we've been going through uh, a number of sermons entitled, Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. Uh, looking at some of the offensive things that Jesus said or things that offend us, some of the challenging teachings that he had, uh, that might be easier for us if they just weren't there. Now, of course, of course, we're not saying that Jesus is an error in saying these things, but more likely that uh, they cause us to bristle because they go against the grain of who we are uh, as broken and fallen people. Often we've seen these uh, challenge the things that we hold most dear, come into direct con- contradiction with the ways that we view our relationships or our possessions or maybe even the character of God himself. But this morning, as we come to this statement that I wish Jesus never said, uh, I want to look at this one, not because it's challenging, though it is, but often how it's just straight up misused. Uh, Today, in Matthew 7, verse 1, Jesus gives us the all-time, top-of-the-list, number one favorite verse of non-Christians. You've probably all heard it before, a verse used maybe even against you or some other meddling Christian that you know, uh, where Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. It's a touchy accusation to be leveled because no one wants to be judgmental or intolerant. These are not qualities that we hold highly or are praised in our culture. And so these words of Jesus have become kind of this all-encompassing trump card to silence any critique or disagreement or situation that might call into question certain behaviors or attitudes. And looking at this, we don't uh, need to look much further than our own backyards to see these kinds of ideas play out. Our entire commercial and political and social culture is built on this, this, this idea that we are not to judge anyone for any reason, and that we are to be completely tolerant. And by tolerance, we mean, of course, total acceptance of any opinion or feeling or action. It's such a dominant trend in our culture that entire businesses and careers and reputations, even lives, have been destroyed because of this demand for complete and total acceptance of all people and lifestyles and behaviors. And so coming to these words of Jesus, we come to passages like this one in the Sermon on the Mount, and it seems like at first that Jesus might be advocating for that exact attitude. You know, don't judge anyone for any reason, or you too will be held to this this standard of, of total and complete condemnation. But what is Jesus really calling us to here this morning? Does living as a part of his kingdom mean that we should never judge anyone for any reason, that we shouldn't judge certain truths or truth claims uh, to be held to the scrutiny of Scripture? Or is it possible that certain judgments are not, judgments are not only allowed, uh, but even beneficial for building up and strengthening the church and the kingdom? And so this morning, I want to look at Jesus bringing us before us a number of attitudes, both good and bad, when it comes to judging. And that's where I want to spend our time today. And the first attitude that Jesus addresses is that he warns us against a self-righteous judgment, this kind of judgment that seeks to condemn. Jesus warns us against a self-righteous judgment. He says in verse 1, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus looks around at kind of the religion police of his day and see they have adopted the place of the critic. That they are quick to pass judgment on those who don't live up to their expectations, who don't follow their man-made rules. And so Jesus isn't here talking about correcting open and obvious sin, but he's talking about a judgment that judges others because they aren't as good as you are. 
It's a self-righteous judgment. It's a judgment that puts you on a pedestal while putting others down. We see an example of this in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is at the house of Simon, a Pharisee, and a woman comes to anoint his feet. And it says, Simon said, if this man were a prophet, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. The Pharisees in their self-righteous arrogance had created this entire class of people, these people steeped in, in sin. And of course, they, the Pharisees, would never consider themselves a part of this group. And so how do we identify and avoid this kind of self-righteous judging? How do we avoid this kind of judging that is not only detrimental to those around us, but to our own spiritual character? Well, throughout the New Testament, we see five different types of judgment described, and three of those are actually encouraged. We see that there is a judgment that tests something's worth. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, we're called to examine ourselves before we take of the Lord's Supper. So to look at the attitudes of our hearts, look at the attitudes that determine whether they're in the right mindset to, mindset to partake in this meal or not, this, this testing of something's worth. We see that there's judgment that seeks to verify truth. In Acts 17, as Paul is on one of his missionary journeys, he comes to uh, the Bereans, uh, these Berean believers, and they begin to uh, test his preaching versus their, their, their scriptures. They begin to look for uh, whether what he's saying is, is verifiably true. And then we also see a judgment to discern right and wrong. And this is often used of prophets speaking to describe whether or not they're speaking as true mouthpieces of God or they're false prophets saying what will tickle men's ears and, and, and be not be uh, in accordance with God's character. And so we see in some regard that judgment is necessary. It's a legitimate tool when it comes to us who are people who seek as Christians to honor truth and do things God's way. But for all of the ways that judgment can go right, we also know that judgment can go terribly wrong and be incredibly destructive. And so we see two ways in the New Testament that universally you know, prohibits judging. We see that we are not allowed to judge another's heart or, or motives, and we're not allowed to judge someone's eternal destination. Uh, you can't look at someone and say, you know, I know why they did this. I know that they were just jealous of me, or I know that they could do this so that everybody else could, you know, they, they would know how great they are. And we also can't be judges of someone's eternity. Now granted, the Bible is very clear that without following Jesus as Lord and Savior, there is no salvation. But we are not allowed to evaluate someone's relationship with Jesus and deem it lacking. And therefore, they are deserving of the fires of hell by our own reckoning. And so these are the kinds of judgment that Jesus says are not permitted because he alone has the ability to know somebody's heart. And any attempt on our part to nobody's heart or their, eternal, or their eternity is, is a self-righteous judgment that elevates us to the position that God alone holds. What Jesus is saying here is be careful by what standard you judge someone because you might not be able to stand up to that standard yourself. This leads us to the second mindset, the second attitude that Jesus addresses here that Jesus warns us against a hypocritical judgment. Jesus says that self-righteous judgment or a judgment that elevates us to a position higher than the one that we actually hold is actually hypocritical because it pretends to be playing a role that isn't ours to play. It allows us to ignore our own sins and focus on the sins of others. Verse 3, it says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
Now, we've heard this illustration before. If you've been a part of church for very long, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, and we see it and sometimes can miss the humor of it, that the people in Jesus' audience here would have been laughing about this. Uh, one of the commentators in researching this said this would be like a, it's like a scene out of the Three Stooges. You know, here's one guy with a little piece of sawdust in his eye, and somebody else enters the scene with this two-by-four coming out of their forehead. You know, he's the kind of guy that every time he turns, everybody else on, on set has to duck. And as a hobbyist woodworker, I know the pain that can come when you get sawdust in your eye, especially when you're wearing contacts. But I can also tell you that I don't want somebody wearing a two-by-four as a blindfold to try to help me remove it. And this is the image that Jesus conveys for us, that when we try to judge others without first dealing with our own sins and our own issues. I know one example that I'm really bad at this, maybe you are as well, when I'm driving late at night into, in the oncoming traffic and their brights are on, you know, the first, you know, come on, you jerk, turn off your brights, only realize like 20 minutes later, I've blinded somebody else. You know, I, I'm quick to judge and quick to forgive myself. And Jesus addresses the religion police of his day who would, who would accuse people of not measuring up to God, to all the, his standards, while finding their own loopholes and fine print that would allow them to ignore the very same standards. He calls them blind guides. He says, how can you hope to help anyone when you haven't dealt with the areas that you were lost to? And if we are ever to be of help to anyone in telling them about a, about a better way, and we have to make sure that we are above reproach in that area as well. For example, do we rally against the LGBT community while harboring sexual sin of our own? Do we claim to be pro-life, but only as far as it extends to the unborn? Do we gossip about how much a gossip someone else is? Do we tear down people that are sinful simply because their sins are more visible than ours? It's like listening to a man watch a football game when his team is losing. You've seen it. You've heard it. He'll criticize the quarterback for throwing poorly, the receivers for not catching the easy passes. He'll blame the refs, the linemen, for not blocking well. And you think, well, if you're so good at it, if you know exactly what to do, then why don't you get out of your chair and go out there and play? And I'll tell you why, because we've seen these guys play. That's what keeps chiropractors in business. You know, Jesus says, you've got no room to criticize when you're steeped in your own ineptitude. And so often we judge because it makes us feel better. That if we have a problem with a sin in our own lives, then it takes a little pressure off us to point the finger at somebody else for a while. It makes our sin look not so bad after all. I love the way Craig Groeschel said it. He said, the place where you issue, issue your harshest, harshest judgment often reveals your deepest weakness. The place where you issue your harshest judgment often reveals your deepest weakness. And yet, for all of the judgment that Jesus warns us against, there's one kind of judgment that he encourages here. We see that Jesus encourages a judgment that restores. It's a discerning judgment. Jesus closes this section of the Sermon on the Mount with a kind of weird statement, verse 6. He says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And you read that at first and you think, what in the world does that have to do with judging? If Jesus said this growing up in my household, my mom would have said to him, you changed paragraphs without indenting. In other words, you moved too quickly between subjects without warning or telling us where you were headed. But as Jesus presents us these two images, we see a difference in, in how we view dogs and pigs versus how they would have. Dogs for us are, are lovable groomed pets that, we, that are members of our family, but dogs for them were not the well-groomed household purebreds. 
These were scavengers running the streets looking for food. Pigs were, of course, unlawful in Jewish culture, and like dogs, they were also scavengers, even often eating decaying flesh. And so Jesus warns us here against polluting things that are holy and set apart by treating them irreverently. And I think he includes it on this section on judging for a very specific reason. The reason that Jesus includes this in the section on where he says, do not judge, is that if we are intended for this statement to be against ever forming an opinion or ever making a call on what is right and what is wrong, if Jesus' statement to do not judge is designed to push us to tolerance and acceptance, if we are to never judge anyone, then how do we discern who are dogs and pigs? Similarly, in just a few verses, Jesus warns, verse 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good, bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus warns us to watch out for people who pollute the truth, who, who pollute God's word for their own personal gain. But how are we supposed to do that without applying some level of judgment or discernment? What Jesus is warning us against here is about becoming the morality police for every person we come across. But he does expect us as Christians to stand for truth and to help our fellow believers do the same. And so if we recognize that there are certain times when we are to judge and discern and, and make a judgment call, times that are beneficial for the health and the edification of the body, then how can we go about doing so the right way? How can we practice a judgment that restores? Well, I think when it comes to being restorative in our judgments of believers and helping to help build them up and build the church up, I think there are two questions we have to ask before we enter into those conversations. The first is, have I dealt with my own sin? Have I dealt with my own sin? It goes back to what Jesus said about sawdust and planks. You know, too often we're trying to help someone see their own fault, their speck, when we're engrossed in our own sin, the plank. See, when it comes to restorative judgment, humility has to be involved. We have to understand that we too are sinners, that we too are susceptible to sin and temptation, and we approach people not in a way that condemns them, but a way that helps build them up. Uh, one thing that came to mind when I thought about this idea is, you know, every family has their stories that you know the ending because they've been told so many times, but you still tell them anyway just to keep the story alive. There's one story in particular that uh, every time my family is around a campfire, it ends up kind of coming up. And it starts something like, hey, remember that one time Poppy, who was my grandpa, was, was drying shoes by a fire? He had some wet shoes that he had uh, camping, he had gotten them wet, and he was sending them by the fire to dry, and as he was sitting there, he kept smelling burning rubber. So he picked up the shoes and is kind of checking them, picking up the shoes and checking them. Happened several times over the course of 10 minutes, until suddenly he shouts, yeah, it was his own shoes that he was wearing that were melting, not the shoes sitting by the fire ring. And I think oftentimes we can be so focused on the fire the, the, so focused on their sin that we overlooked the shoes on our own feet. The kind of judging that Jesus warns us against is being so focused on judging the person next to us that we miss out on our own guilt, our own sins that need to be dealt with. Galatians 6 says it perfectly, If anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore that person gently. But watch yourself, 
or you too may also be tempted. Now, Jesus isn't calling us to perfection, but he is calling us to a position of spiritual maturity as we seek to restore those who have wandered or fallen. I think the second question we need to ask is, what is my motive in correcting someone? I read a story this week about a mom who is busy doing some uh, house chores when suddenly uh, she heard a scream from where her three-year-old son and one-year-old daughter were playing. And so she runs in the room and says, what happened? And her, her son is angrily and tearfully uh, crying, and he says that his sister pulled his hair. And so the mother you know, saw this as a teachable moment and explained, you know, it wasn't her intention to hurt you. She's just a one-year-old who doesn't know better. Doesn't know, she doesn't know that it hurts to have your hair pulled like that. And so she felt pretty proud of her calm and her poise and went back to her chores. And uh, not too long later, heard another cry, this time coming from the one-year-old. She runs in the room, what happened? And her boy simply said, now she knows. <laughs> what is your motive in judgment? What's your motive? Is it for someone to know just how bad she is, how much she hurt you? Or is it to model God's correction and forgiveness? I think we have to ask ourselves in these moments, am I correcting this person to bring them down or to help them realize their fault and build them up in it? The question really comes down to whether we are pushing reconciliation or pushing self-promotion. Are we pointing out how bad they are or how good they could be? See, our attitude isn't one of, I have it all figured out, and so help you. let me help you to be as good as I am but that we come alongside as a spiritual mentor, a person who has fought the fight, who's a fellow soldier who's been helping in that battle. And we know that this requires some spiritual maturity, and that's why I love the context that we have here at Southlake, this multi-generational context, that we need spiritual brothers and sisters, that we need spiritual fathers and mothers to bring about, to come alongside and help us as we pursue Christ together. See, if we deal with the situation in a church, a situation that needs to be corrected, and it does not break our hearts, then we're not dealing with it correctly. In tough times of sin, is it our goal to see them restored to the church, to the community, or just to make them feel bad? What is our motive in judging? I think the goal of a judgment that restores is a desire to see a person flourish in Christ. The goal is mercy and forgiveness, bringing them back into the right and not condemning them to guilt. Now, I know that it's easy for judgment to become destructive. We can see it become destructive for our own spiritual health, leading us to become cynical or unforgiving or bitter. And it can also be destructive to the faith community. And one of the biggest complaints against the church, we've all heard it, I don't want to go to church. There are too many hypocrites there and too many judgmental people. But what would it look like if we truly saw a judgment that restores? I want to show you an example as we close. You might have heard in the story in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing to this messy, messy church in Corinth. And they're priding themselves on the freedom they have in Christ, but also using that freedom to do things that are not in the spirit of Christ. In particular, this man in the congregation is sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother, which is wrong on, of course, all kinds of levels, but especially in the church. And the Corinthian people are proud of their acceptance, their tolerance of this. And so the instruction that this but that Paul gives for this man is to be thrown out of the church, cast out of the church for a time. And yet Paul writes another letter to the Corinthians. 
In 2 Corinthians 2.5, he says this, and I can't for sure say it's the same man, but I think based on the context, we'd be smart in believing it is. He says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the, by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him, so he'll not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. We see in this instance a, a judgment on sin placed. We, we see that this was not tolerated within the church, and yet there was grace and forgiveness when the time came to bring him back into the community. And I think when the church takes sin seriously, we will always experience the victory of that decision. We see over and over throughout Scripture examples of where sin is tolerated and destruction soon follows. And yet when our goal, the goal of our judgment on sin is not destruction of a brother or sister, but restoration, we get to see that glory, the glory of the cross and the power of the resurrection lived out among us. When we practice this type of restorative judgment in a faithful way, we get to see the cross lived out, the sacrifice of the cross lived out, and the hope of the resurrection lived out, seeing the gospel come alive in, the, in our midst. Now, I know that a sermon on judgment is not ideal for the typical invitation, but I think the heart of the issue is still the heart of every invitation, the idea of restoration, to see that glory of the cross, to see the power of the resurre- resurrection lived out among us, that, we have been, that our debt has been paid in Christ, and that we have the opportunity to be restored to our Father, for us to see God's purposes lived out among His children and in His church. To go out into the world as just as Jesus did, as John 3.17 says, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so this morning, I simply want to extend to you the invitation of restoration, of reconciliation with your father. Maybe like that prodigal son, you've been running. And you've been a long way off, and while you're still a long way off, he's called you near. He's embraced you, and he's waiting for you to come back to him. In other cases, sometimes we might need to be uh, the older brother in the story with a different attitude. We know in the story of the prodigal son, the older brother's at home in the field and is disgusted when his brother comes. But what a better story that would have been if his brother would have gone out seeking his younger brother, seeking to restore him, seeking to make some restorative judgments. I think we have the opportunity as the church to come alongside of people wandering or erring and love them in such a way that points them closer to Jesus. Our goal this morning is to see you restored to Jesus, to see the world restored to Jesus, to know that there is a God who loves them and wants to see them living in accordance with the truth. So let our prayer be that we would not judge self-righteously or hypocritically, but that we would seek restoration for those who are far from God. Let's pray about that now. Father God, we come before you this morning seeking a heart of restoration, of reconciliation, a heart that wants to see people come closer to you. God, it's so easy to take these opportunities of of judgment to put others down, to elevate ourselves, to be hypocritical and assuming that we are better than we are. And I think so often that's our default when it comes to judgment. To look at the world even and those who don't know you and try to treat them as if they should. God, instead I pray that we would be people who 
practice restoration. That yes, we would hold true to your truth, that we would make judgment claims that your word is true, that you are true. That you are who you said you are, that your word contains the complete revelation of who you are, and that is not up for debate. But in those judgments that we use, not just truth, but grace as well. That we would point others to you in a loving way, just as Jesus loved us when we were still far from him. God, we pray that we would, as your church, make a difference in this world in the ways that we recognize sin and point others to you in response. God, I pray that even inside the church that you would empower us to have the difficult conversations, to have the challenging conversations, that we would be in enough relationship with one another, that when issues and sins crop up, that we would come alongside of a brother or sister and restore them gently, that we would call them closer to you and that we would be drawn closer to you in the process. That growing together, we follow you more closely in your love and your truth and in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name.